0: So um, I got a call last night at 10, I think it was 10.19, if my memory serves me right, from Daniel Nealon, who is our lead preaching pastor. And yeah, uh-oh I was right. Um, you know, it's been said God's other name is Surprise. So, uh, and I could tell by his voice, he, uh, he was struggling, was not feeling well. He was supposed to preach today. He's like, hey, I don't know if I'm going to be able to preach. So we left it that he was going to contact me this morning uh, if he can or can't. So as I was walking through the doors this morning at about 4.40 in the morning, because I knew I was going to have to preach, I get a text from Daniel, I can't preach. So, surprise, we have, uh, so I'm preaching this morning, by the way. So, here's the plan. Um, What I did is, uh, I yeah, I I took an old sermon, um, got in this morning, did some quick editing, and so we have two roles this morning. My role is to preach as faithfully as I possibly can. Your role is to be as gracious as you possibly can. <laughs> okay? If we, if we cover our roles to the best of our ability, God is with us. And to that end, let me pray, actually, uh, for our time in the Word together. Father, I give you thanks for this morning. This, thanks for this gathering. Thanks for our worship together. Thanks that you are a worthy God, worthy of our praise, and so um, help us this morning to focus well, especially as we open your word, the reading, the preaching of your word, that you would uh, strengthen us where we need to be strengthened, convict and challenge us where we need to be convicted and challenged, but I do pray especially that we would walk out this morning encouraged by your goodness, and especially as we contemplate. Uh, the beauty of the cross. So help us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we are in Psalm 73. Psalm 73. This summer we're doing uh, our series will be in the Psalms all summer long. So we'll kick it off this morning with 73. And I will read uh, verses, I'll read the first half of the Psalm. Psalm uh, 73 verses 1 through 15. We'll take that part up and then... Later on, we'll take up the rest. So, Psalm 73, verse 1. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace; violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness; their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to and find no fault in them, and they say, "How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High?" Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Okay, so as we enter into the Psalms this summer in Psalm 73, Psalm um, We have to recognize that the Psalms were never intended as merely our private prayer journal, so to speak. But rather, the Psalms were given to us by God because they help us as God's people together to express our hearts to God. I mean, that's one of the beauties of the Psalms and and what God has delivered to us through the Psalms is the range of emotions we have in the Psalms. Psalms of incredible joy, psalms of incredible sorrow, right? They allow us to express our emotions to God, but they also shape what we are to believe about God. So a great question for us, anytime we enter into the Psalms, especially as God's people this morning, the question is, why did God give us this particular Psalm? Why did he give us, as his people, Psalm 73, So Psalm 73 is a wisdom psalm and essentially helping us to grow in the wisdom of the Lord when we consider the ultimate destiny of the righteous, those who seek to be faithful to God, and as the psalmist will say, of the wicked, those who have no desire to follow the Lord. So this is a, a wisdom psalm for us. This is a psalm of Asaph. So David wrote most of the Psalms in our Bible, uh, but this particular one is written by Asaph and he was appointed by King David to be a musician in the temple uh, for God's people. This Psalm was written about 3,000 years ago, if you think about it, 3,000 years ago, and, and yet it is incredibly relevant to our heart's desires and our heart's struggles today. And in this psalm, we're going to find the word heart is mentioned six times. And what Asaph is pressing on us, and really, what the Lord is pressing on us in this psalm is, how is our heart towards the Lord when things in life seem really unfair? How is our heart towards God when we struggle, when life seems unfair? And so what I want us to think about is... What do our hearts do, especially in the realm of envy? Envy is going to be a major theme in this psalm. What do we do when our hearts are envious? So we'll see how the psalmist struggles with this, but then at the end, we'll see a paradigm shift in Asaph's life, and that'll be the second half of the psalm. And so for us, the question will be, with our own hearts, what kind of paradigm shift might we need this morning, especially as we go through seasons of struggle. So with that, verse 1 of Psalm 73, Asaph begins this psalm, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Okay, this is a good, solid statement. It's a great theological statement. Truly God is good to those who are pure in heart. But if you notice, the psalm doesn't end there. This declaration is tested. It's tested in Asaph's life. And it's also often tested in our own life. We can claim, do we know, if if, if we all take a test, is God good? Most of us, if not all of us, right, would say, yes, God is good. But that's often tested. And there can often be a gap from our head, our head knowledge, to our heart of what we really believe and embrace about God. And we see this in Asaph's life as this truth is tested. In verse 2 says but as for me my feet had almost stumbled my steps had nearly slipped this is the language of struggle this is the language of doubt and what caused asaph to stumble to doubt in his trust of god's goodness to him he names it in verse 3 it's envy he says for i was envious of the arrogant when i saw the prosperity of the wicked So Asaph looks around and what is causing his struggle is he is envious of those who are prospering and in Asaph's mind, they should not be. So let's ask the question, what is envy all about? What's at the heart of envy? Envy is destructive. It's a destructive sin of the heart, but it is often hidden. Yet it's toxic to our own hearts. It's toxic to the community around us and it can leak out. Envy is the desire for something that we do not have, right? It's a discontented heart. I'll quote two, uh, two different theologians here. First one is the late Tim Keller in his book on the Psalms. He wrote this. To envy is to want someone else's life. It's to feel not just that they don't deserve the good life, but that you do. And God hasn't been fair. It's spiritual self-pity which forgets your sin and what you truly deserve from God and drains all the joy out of your life. It's what Tim Keller mentions about envy and how it plays out in our life. Now, the next one from Jerry Bridges. He was a navigator, authored quite a few really good books. Here's what he writes. Envy is the painful and oftentimes resentful awareness of an advantage enjoyed by someone else. Sometimes we want that same advantage. Sometimes we just resent the person having something that we don't have. That's what he writes. And he goes on to give some good insight. He says there's usually two conditions that will tempt us with respect to envy. The first one is we can envy those with whom we most closely identify with. The second one is we are tempted to envy in areas of life that we value the most. So for me personally, I am not going to envy like the world champion of curling, if you know what that is, or cornhole. So I don't care enough. I'm not going to envy the chefs on TV because I hate the kitchen with a passion. That's not going to be where I envy, where I will envy or where I'm tempted to envy Is a pastor who seems to have a more effective ministry, seems to just be more gifted and more blessed than I am. That's where I will be prone to envy. All right, we're prone to envy that which hits close to home in our own lives. So, how does envy play out in Asaph's heart? Where do we see it here in Psalm 73? In verses 4 through 12, Asaph looks around. And he sees that the wicked, those that are hostile to God, those that are not following God's commands, they're alive and well. They're prospering in God's world. They're doing much better than he is. It's not fair, right? And the stuff that Asaph envies is the same stuff, even though, again, written 3,000 years ago, it is the same mess of stuff that we envy and deal with all the time. But I would say we need a little bit of translation work. Because the slang of the Hebrew here is a little different than our slang. For instance, and I'll I'll use just generic names of Jack and Jill. Like, you won't hear, we won't say, Jill. She just never has any pangs and her body is so fat and sleek. Right? That's verse 4 in the ESV. Translate, pangs would be struggles... And um, fat and sleek means healthy and strong. So it'd be more like, Jill seems to have no struggles and always looks good. That's not fair, and we don't like her, right? That's more of the sense. Or this one. Hey, Jack, you know what your problem is? Your eyes swell out through fatness, right? That's verse 7 in the ESV. It may be a better or more common to us would be NIV with the way it translates from their callous hearts come iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limit. Meaning Jack is just a prosperous, cold-hearted schemer. Right? We can identify more with that. So, verses 4 through 12. If we take this together, what the psalmist is writing in these verses, as he looks around the world, what he sees is other people, the wicked, especially, living the good life. I put that in quotes. They seem to have, and I'm just going to run through this list quickly. They seem to have no struggles until death. They're healthy and strong. They have no burdens. They're prideful and violent. They even mock God. And if that's not bad enough, the psalmist says they're even popular. People keep turning back to them. Verse 12 sums it up Behold, these are the wicked, they're always at ease, and they increase in riches. Right, that's Asaph's perspective as he looks out. These are the wicked. They're always at ease. They're always comfortable with the good life. They have all that. And they're increasing in their wealth and their riches. They've got it made. We would say, and you can help me with a fill in the blank, it's just not fair. It's just not fair, right? How does it play out in our, lone, uh, our own hearts and our lives? Again, when life doesn't seem fair, when we are struggling, We can so often think that we deserve better, right? it takes a lot of forms. We want better health. We want better looks. We want better intellect, better personality, better clothes, better cars, better homes, better jobs, better recognition, better paychecks, better friends, maybe a better spouse, maybe not a new one, but a better version of our current spouse, Better kids. Maybe we want somebody else's kids and we want to trade them our kids. Especially hard when we are struggling and watching others who disregard God doing so well in life. So why is envy so toxic to our hearts and the community around us? It is because it really does affect the heart. It affects the heart Horizontally, you could say, as well as vertically. Let's think about vertically between us and God. When life seems unfair, God seems unjust, and we're struggling, we get suspicious of God, right? We can doubt. We doubt His, does God see? Does He care? Does He know? Is this going to turn out in our best interest? Right, we, got, we doubt God's character. We doubt His intentions at times, but then horizontally, um, it can lead to resentment of others. We want what they have, and we can resent them for having it. All right? As an example of this in my own life, it was 2004. Uh, my wife Tiffany and I—we were finished. Uh, I was finished up at seminary. We we're going to move our kids from St. Louis, where our seminary was to Lawrence, Kansas, where I pastored, a college pastor for the last 18 years before coming here a year ago, right? So we were making that move, that call to the church in Lawrence, Kansas. It was the same church my wife and I were part of as uh, college students. Um, So we're heading back there. We were really excited to go back to Lawrence. And uh, we had one day, we drove in for one day to house hunt. Spent all day house hunting. But the the issue is... um, The very first house that we saw, we fell in love with. We thought, yes, this is it. Every house after that, like, nope, it's not the first house. Nope, not the first house. So all day long. So at the end of the day, I'm like, let's lay a contract down really quick. I mean, let's, we can't have this thing, can't have this thing taken out from underneath us, right? But we thought, no, we can trust God with this one. We probably should sleep on it. We should probably, you know, check our finances again, spend extra time praying, you know, doing all the Christian stuff you're supposed to do, right? So the next morning, we wake up. We talk to our realtor about putting the contract on the house, and he says, ah, it's gone. said, a couple from California flew in last night, spent two hours, put a contract on it, and it's theirs. They took it right out. They ripped the carpet out from underneath us, literally, right? So here's what happened in that moment. Um, number one, I hated everybody from California, <laughs> right? That's the horizontal, um, including my own brother who lives in California. And the second one is the, it's the vertical. I was really upset with God, and here's why. As I look back, why was I struggling so deeply? Driving all the way back to St. Louis, really frustrated, and it's this. We took extra time to pray. We looked at the layout of the house. The thing that we are considering this house is we wanted an open layout for hospitality, right? Christian hospitality. We were seeking a house to be good stewards of our finances, to honor God with our finances. All that, like we were doing, we thought all the right stuff, thought this was it, and the house was gone. And I remember telling Tiffany, why am I so upset? It's just a house. But what I was upset by... Um, was I felt like God had just uh, didn't care and the house was gone, right? And so it can lead us to doubt. Now, in more extreme, this is in Psalm 73, where this envy leads Asaph to is to actually ask the question, is it worth it to follow God? We see this in verse 13. It says, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. So remember the question at the very beginning of the sermon, how is our heart towards the Lord when life seems unfair? Asaph's heart, he's asking, is it even worth it to keep my heart clean and pure before the Lord? And can you relate? Can you relate with that uh, that struggle, wondering, is it worth it to really follow God wholeheartedly? especially in the midst of struggle and pain. And at times, I think as Christians, um, we can fall into the trap of as long as. Okay, yes, I will trust God. I will follow him as long as, and maybe this is underneath the surface and we're not even aware we're doing this. As long as um, me and my loved ones do not suffer too much in this life. I'll follow God wholeheartedly as long as I can actually retain some control over my life, you know, just like 51%, right? I'll follow God wholeheartedly as long as God blesses me. And the big cry of our culture, I'll follow God as long as it makes me happy, as long as it works for me. But this version of Christianity, as long as I feel blessed and as long as it makes me happy, will always get tested. And what do we do? relationships. Um, others will prosper more than we are prospering as we look around. And, and what do we do? Especially as we go through struggles in work, you may have godly integrity. The person next to you may not have godly integrity. They may seem to get the bonuses or move ahead. Qu- what do we do in parenting? You can seek to follow the Lord and do the right things in parenting but families and kids that are outside the faith may seem to be blessed, get more awards, more prestige, the starting spot, whatever it is. What do we do in all of these moments? This is where the second half of the psalm comes in and helping us to have a perspective shift. Starting in verse 16, we see a turning point in this psalm. Asaph's question, is it worth it? to follow the Lord wholeheartedly, right? We see this question begin to change as he's looking around and sees originally the the wicked seem to be prospering, but here's what he comes to, verse 16. Asaph is weary from the emotional struggle. Verse 16 says, and then he went into the sanctuary of God, or you could say into the temple of God, and his life is transformed at this point. In the verse, the whole the whole psalm changes directions here. Now, it's in the temple that you could say Asaph has this uh, this aha moment. And when I say aha, I, I, I fast forward and even think of the glorious uh, the future for believers, the new heavens and new earth. Right. That's going to be a moment of aha, like we are aha. Now I see fully and perfectly what God was doing, right? And Asaph has a taste of this as he looks around. Now, we don't know that uh, Asaph doesn't tell us exactly what he experienced in the temple, in the sanctuary. Could it be that he looked at the sacrificial system and then recognized in that the holiness of God and the judgment against sin and wickedness? Is that what it was? We don't know. Was it corporate worship, God's people together? Was it private reflection? We don't know. But we know that Asaph's heart is changed in this psalm as he enters into the sanctuary of God. And this is where he lands. He lands at verse 1, if I could just summarize it. That he recognizes truly God is good to those who are pure in heart. God is good to those who are pure in heart. Now... Let's lay this out with um, what I would call two aha moments of how he came to that conviction as we look at this psalm. And again, the question we're asking this morning, the question I'm asking is not just for Asaph's paradigm shift, but for us. What do we need to see in this psalm and to understand from the Lord to help us when our hearts are struggling? So the first one is this, the first aha moment for Asaph is his perspective on the wicked as he reflects on their ultimate destiny. Okay, in verse 2, if you look back to verse 2, who was stumbling? It was Asaph. He said, my feet almost stumbled and my steps nearly slipped. Then in verse 18, Asaph writes, truly you set them, the ungodly, in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. And Verses 19 and 20 continue this reality. That due to their hard-heartedness, Asaph writes, they are destroyed in a moment, swept utterly away by terrors. This is an expression of death, an eternal separation from God. This is what the Bible calls hell. That is what Asaph is recognizing right now about the destiny of those who do not pursue the Lord. And then in verses 12 and 27, let's look at this comparison. Verse 12, Asaph says, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, and they increase in riches. It's the first half of the psalm. But look at his conviction later when he says behold. And when he says behold, it's not just a casual, hey, look, see, right? Behold is to be in awe, to take in in such a way that transforms our lives. Verse 27 says, For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. So Asaph is coming to this recognition of the ultimate destiny of those that he has been envious of. So let me just pause With a practical question, because if you are like me and you wrestle at times with looking out the world, looking at my own life, looking at struggles and saying, why, why does God even bless those who seem to forsake him, who seem to not care about him? Why? I think a good answer for this is Romans chapter two, verses four and five offers us insight. This is the apostle Paul who says this. Or do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Did you catch that? What the scriptures are leading us to is where we, whereas we can be envious of those in the world like you seem to be so blessed. From the Bible's perspective, this is God's patience, that God is blessing them in this life so that they will recognize who it is that, that is blessing them, so that they will bow their knees and their hearts to him and worship him and him alone. But for those who do not, ultimately recognize God as the true giver of gifts and submit their life under him and his grace, what they are, the gifts that they are receiving is just essentially storing up judgment because they lacked an appreciation, a worship, an awe of the one true living God. God's goodness is intended to give the unbeliever an opportunity to repent to turn to God, to receive his grace through Christ. It's Proverbs 23, 17 says this. Let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. The reality is there are many around us that are living their life in contrary to God and his ways, and it can be easy for us to fall into envy And what the scriptures are calling our our hearts to do is not to envy, but rather for us to be steadfast in our faithfulness to the Lord and to pray, to pray for those who will receive God's judgment unless they turn and receive the gift of Christ and acknowledge God as the true giver of gifts. It's Jesus himself, the Sermon on the Mount That said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. We're not to envy sinners, but to recognize the day is coming. Our pureness of heart is not in vain. So, the first one, again, to the question of how's our heart when God seems to be unfair and bless others around us? The first paradigm shift, the aha moment for Asaph, is to recognize um, God is gracious. And he is patient, but a day is coming when the ungodly will be judged. We are not to envy sinners. The second one, the aha moment, is his perspective, Asaph's perspective on God's goodness. What we see here, the question is, what's changed? Has Asaph's circumstances changed? No. What has changed is Asaph's understanding that God's goodness is not based on prosperity, that somebody is prospering. God's goodness is based on his presence. That he is with us. That he is with the faithful. And to be with us means with us not only in this life, but through all eternity with us. Asaph understands that no matter what, what his circumstances, whatever he's going through, God is Truly with him. And this is what he writes in verses 23 and 24. He says, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Beautiful word. So we come to this end of the psalm. Just remember verse two, remember verse two. But as for me, my feet almost stumbled. And then we have in verse 28, Asaph says, but as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. And again, Asaph's life is transformed in the temple, in the sanctuary based on what he saw. Based on what he experienced. Again, we don't know exactly what that is, but for us, what is it? What is the ultimate proof of God's goodness in our lives? It is the cross. It is the cross. And what happened at the cross? It was Jesus himself, the son of God, who took on the sin of his people for those that will bow their knees and their hearts to Christ at the cross, there was this great transfer. What was transferred to Christ on the cross was our sin. But we also received something in the transfer. What was transferred to us was, was Christ's righteousness. To this question, when we want to call out to God, life doesn't seem fair, it's not fair, God, you're not being fair. Here's what's not fair. What's not fair is grace. It's not, we should have, we shouldn't receive God's blessing except that God decided chose to be gracious to us. So here's this picture I have in my mind of if God were to point his finger at me or any other believer in judgment the image is really it's Jesus that pushes us behind us stands in front of us and says no at the cross I took it. I took his sins, her sins, past, present and future so that they are safe, secure. God's judgment was poured out on Christ and not on ours. Where does this lead us? It should lead us to immense gratitude. Immense gratitude. Asaph, the way he talks about it here, he says um, that he can draw near to God. And we see this same language in the New Testament, that our ability to draw near to God is because Jesus, that's our only answer of how we can draw near to a holy God as sinful people, Jesus taking our sin. And we see in the scriptures that for the Christian, there is, according to Romans 8, the beginning, there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ. And then at the very end of that Psalm, or at the very end of that Romans 8, there is no eternal separation from those who are, in Christ, who are in Christ. And the psalmist ends with that, that I may tell of all your works. And that's our calling. Our calling is to talk about the cross and what we have received that we did not deserve and what is offered to others that they do not deserve. The cross leads us to gratitude. And the question again, where's our heart? How do we fight against envy? If envy is a virus that can take over our heart and spill out and affect our, com- our community, what's, what's, the, what's the vaccine? It is gratitude. Um, in her book, uh, Living Into Community, uh, author Christ- uh, Christine Pohl writes about gratitude and envy. Here's what she says We can be envious of another person's relationships, spiritual giftedness, blessings, reputation, possessions, successes, just about anything. At the core of envy is an absence of gratitude for the gifts that we have been given. And I would say, I would specify those gifts. It's the gift of Christ and the blessings that flow out of that gift of Christ. And Christine Pohl tells the story in her book of a church worker that spent time, uh, spent some years with refugees in Latin America, discovered how the refugee camps were structured so here's what they would do when they would come to a location to develop these camps. They developed three committees. The first committee was the Committee of Education, so they could figure out how to continue to edu- educate their kids in these camps. Second one, Committee of Construction, how to build the camps that were sustainable. The third committee is the Committee of Joy. They came together to re- continue to seek to remind each other how to have joy in the midst of struggle. And for us, I say that just to share what's, what's, our, what's our committee of joy? What's our community of joy? We are together, it's the church. We need this every, every single Sunday to remind us of what is true of us in our ultimate destiny. We need the church every Sunday. We need small groups, right? Our small groups of reminding us of God's goodness, His faithfulness to us, that we can bear one another's burdens. Reminding each other of what we actually truly have to be grateful for. Namely the cross and the benefits of Christ. Envy says, I deserve more. I want more. Gratitude says with open hands, thank you Lord Jesus for your gift of salvation. Thank you for what you did for me. And the reality is we are all going to struggle until it all unfolds. In this life, we're going to struggle until it all unfolds. And, okay, back to the house where I left off. If you remember, the house went out from underneath us. I was left embittered towards God and hating everybody from California, right? The vertical, horizontal issues of envy. Um, The next day, my wife, Tiffany, sees a house on the internet in Lawrence that we hadn't seen. And it ended up being just in so many ways tailor-made for our family, but here's one piece of the story I'd left out earlier. My oldest son, Peyton, had been praying for a swing set in the backyard. Okay, like that's a lot of pressure on a parent, right? When they're praying over and over that God had to provide a swing set. But God did not answer his prayer in that way. There was no swing in the backyard, no swing set. Instead, there was a two-story playhouse with an air conditioning unit built into the window for those hot summer days in Kansas, right? God graciously opened my eyes to his goodness, but it had to unfold. And this is the reality of the scriptures in Psalm 73, that God's goodness will fully unfold for us. We're going to struggle and suffer. We're going to be tempted to envy, but there is a future day called the new heavens and new earth, where we will see the goodness of God in all of his glory. It is a place of no more pain, no more suffering, no more death, or no more sickness, illness, mourning, tears. It is that day that we are to look to. And God is working in our lives, helping us to claim, verse 28, but as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. And how has God drawn near to us? What is, where do we see it visibly? God's goodness to us. It's on this table right in front of me, right? This table, what we see here is ordinary bread, right? But what does this bread represent? Represents the body of Christ that was given for us on the cross. What we have is wine, we have juice. What does that represent? represents the blood of Christ that was shed for us because of his goodness, because of his love. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, representing his body, right? He took bread, and after giving thanks, He said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup. And after giving thanks, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. The apostle Paul adds, as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we are declaring the Lord's death until he comes, until he returns again. And let's pray together. Lord, we ask that you would meet us at this table in a way that strengthens our faith. Please grow us in the knowledge of your glorious grace. Give us a hope that sustains us. So we pray that you would take these ordinary elements, this bread, this juice, this wine, but set it apart in such a way that we know that you are with us truly and deeply. And may you be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.